Hey, welcome to episode three of Write You a Song. Our podcast where we talk with Nashville's most successful songwriters about all the songs you didn't know they wrote. If you like this podcast, and we hope you do, please subscribe and share it with your music geeky friends, too. They'll love it. I'm your host, Tom Maley, and in case you missed it, our first month's guest was Brett Warren of the Warren Brothers. Last month was Jeffrey Steele, and this month, a guy who's written hits now in four different decades, and he's still going strong. He got a start in Nashville in 1984 when he signed a writing deal with a publishing company owned by Ronnie Millsap, and since then, he's had Huge hits in the 90s, the early 2000s, right up to the last few years. See if you recognize any of these. Someone told you I was taking it rough But why they make those stories up When I'm over you I want to do it all That's the kind of mood I'm in This ain't no thinking He's a member of the Country Music Songwriting Hall of Fame, and his work has won ACMs, CMAs, and Grammy Awards. Tim Nichols, welcome to Write You a Song. Happy to be here, buddy. Happy to be here. Of the songwriters that we've had on so far, you've had the longest career. Was Keith Whitley one of the first major artists to record your your writings? Yeah, he, Keith was one of the first. And actually, I, I wrote this song with a buddy of mine, Zach Turner, uh, it's a song called "I'm Over You" that that Keith recorded. That was actually a, mine and Zach's very first hit. And so, and then actually, then even before that, Keith he was working with the producer Blake Mevis, who who cut all the early George Strait hits. Keith had been working with him, and they had. Um, they had recorded another song of mine called Brotherly Love. And I, I have two younger brothers. I wrote, I wrote this song about my brothers. And so they had that, um, they had recorded that. And then it ended up, Keith ended up changing producers and he went to work with Garth Fundus. And so um, they had those tracks, RCA had those tracks in the vault. And then when he passed away, I guess it was 80, 89, I think. Um, they went back, pulled out those tracks, and he had a vocal with it. Garth Fundus cut new tracks to it, and they they ended up making it a duet with Earl Thomas Conley called Brotherly Love, which was a number one. We share the same last name and the same color eyes. But we fought like tigers over that old red bike. To have a singer like Whitley singing your songs early on in my career, you know, was a great way to get the ball rolling, so to speak. We looked out for each other with brotherly love. But you didn't go to Nashville to be primarily a a songwriter, right? You went there to be a a performer first. That's exactly right. I mean, when I moved to, when I moved to Nashville, it was years and years and years ago now in 1980, I didn't even know it was possible really to to make a living writing songs you know I, I moved i had a little band and and i moved here thinking i wanted to be a you know i was wanting to be a, 
country singer. And I got here and you, and you find out quickly that the music business, the industry here really respects songwriting and, and the craft. And so I switched, I started going to the Bluebird Cafe and, and seeing all the, you know, the writers there in the round, you know, the Bluebird Cafe is just a small little listening room. And, um, and I would, it just looked like the people in that circle were having just, just a tremendous amount of fun, um, telling great stories, singing great songs that I, and I was like, I want to figure out how to do that. And so for me, I just discovered, you know, part of the journey I just discovered I wasn't supposed to be a country artist. I, I I was supposed to be a songwriter. So I feel so fortunate that I was able to discover relatively early on what it was that I was. I feel like I was put here to do. Was that a, a tough realization for you? A lot of folks come here with the, the intent to be country singers, to be artists. And for that country star thing to happen, a lot of ducks have to line up, so to speak. And a, and a lot of the times, you don't have control over a lot of those ducks. And so for me, uh, I mean, I, me and, and Zach Turner, the guy that I wrote I'm Over You With, we ended up getting a record deal for about 15 minutes. And we kind of had our shot and our little time. But... It, again, it goes back. I just think that that wasn't supposed to be my path, you know. And it turned out that the that a dream that I didn't come to Nashville with was the one that I was supposed to be dreaming, and was the one that it in fact has come true. Did you know when you went to Nashville? Did you have any idea growing up that that you had a a knack, a skill, a gift for uh, for being a lyricist, for being a writer? I had I had always liked. English and literature and school and reading and I had and I had messed around with writing songs. I you know, I had a little a little band back in, in Missouri. While we were playing all of the cover songs, I just wanted to be able to throw in a couple of original songs too. Mm-hmm. And so I, I was a big country fan. My dad was a huge country fan. And so growing up, we would all, he had always have on the radio and there was music always playing in the house. Now he didn't play an instrument or sing or anything like that, but he was just a huge fan. And so I grew up listening to listening and hearing country music and even, you know, going to country music shows. I remember seeing Johnny Cash, I was probably 10 or 12 years old, you know, and so when it when I started to again getting to Nashville and and meeting songwriters, it just felt like a really natural kind of evolution and I feel like you have to have some sort of I think god-given kind of seed or whatever that is in you, but for me I feel like Songwriting is definitely a learned craft, and so you can work at that. But I feel like it's more you can kind of you can set in classes, you can read books for years and years, but ultimately you have to then write songs. You have to you have to take you know actionable steps. So I began writing a bunch of a lot of bad songs. 
And I think that's part of the process. And I, and I also feel like we are maybe built with a kind of a built-in defense mechanism that to a, to a degree keeps us from knowing exactly how bad our songs are in the beginning. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Because if we knew, if we should go by, you know, I'll go back and listen to these, you know, songs like or some of the early songs now. It's like, wow, this is terrible, you know. Or this was like, okay, well, the idea was right, but then you can see it's like, okay, well, this was wrong, and the second verse was, has nothing to do with the rest of the song. And, and, but I think, again, there's this the built-in defense mechanism so we don't really know that our songs suck. And so, <laughs> so, so that way we keep, we keep on going, you know, until we begin to figure it out. And, it, it, um, it sounds to me like what you're describing is like somebody who maybe has some natural athletic ability, but if they don't get to the gym or the track or the field and and right. work on it, you're that's never it. you're never going to get better. That's it in a nutshell. That's that's a much more concise way to put it, but that's exactly <laughs> that's exactly what it is. And one of the yes. things uh, that I was uh, reading an interview with you where, and you've kind of gone over this ground a little bit. It's about showing up and you talk about it's important to show up because some days there may be nothing there but you've got to be ready when there is something there Go, to talk a little bit about that i just i mean for the uh, the prime example is of that is but the day that craig wiseman and i wrote live like you were dying we had been writing together for years craig was having success i was having success but really, for whatever reason, we had not had any success together, even though we'd been writing songs and we'd been liking the songs and we would come close, you know, like an artist would record it, we'd record a song and then they would get dropped or just one thing or another. So the day that we wrote Live Like You Were Dying was just like any other day. And we didn't we didn't have a clue that we were going to write that song that day. But those are in, invariably those are the days when you go in and it's like, for whatever reason, it's just you lightning strikes or the heavens open up and it's like, and you get this song that's like, where did that come from? You said I was in my early 40s with a lot of life before me when a moment came that stopped me on a down. I didn't have that idea. He didn't have that idea when we showed up when we started talking and so that thing that must be present to win and i feel like so many of those principles rules songwriter rules the four songwriters you talk to they're going to tell you that but still man there are those days it's like what i would give for one original thought man what you do just one and he said i went skydiving i went Rocky Mountain climbing, I went 2.7 seconds on a full name Blue Manchu. And I looked deeper, and I spoke sweeter, and I gave forgiveness I've been denying. And he said, someday I hope you get the chance to live like you would die. Another thing that, that you said that I, I really like is just kind of your philosophy about crafting a song. And 
It's uh, make the rhyme happen, but hide it. Well, for a, a lot of times I think the artists here in Nashville, I mean, every time they get ready to make a record, they get they hear so many songs. And to a degree, whether it be with rhyme scheme or whatever structure, some sort of structure, you're always trying to like find something fresh. It's like, okay, we want to be different, but if it's like, I, mean, I just feel like that's kind of the other thing about songwriting is it's not the easiest thing in the world. And I talk when I'm talking to like new writers and whatnot, it's, I just tell them you, you have to love it. And a lot of people like, man, I think I want to be a songwriter. I want to get in the music business because you can make a lot of money. And it's like, well, that's true. You, you can, that's, that's true. You can make a lot of money in the music business, but generally it's too hard and it takes too long to get to the money. It's a lot of rejection. And especially songwriters, I mean, it's still, you know, nine times out of ten, even still we're we hear we all we're hearing no. So you just have to be able to accept that and, and not take it personal, which is not the easiest thing to do because you know your songs are like your babies and it's like when people are passing on you know, Blake Shelton passes on your songs like you know saying your kid's ugly but they don't mean it like that and so you can't you can't take it like that so they they don't mean it personal they just you know it's just the song that you're they're not it doesn't even mean it's your your song is not good it's just not exactly what they're looking for and so that's what you you have to keep in mind sure and that that song might not be right for jason aldean but it might work perfectly for chris young exactly that's Uh, exactly right i think the perception is uh, on the outside looking in that top-notch songwriters like like you or Jeffrey Steele or Brett Warren or, is that you're a Hall of Famer, Tim Nichols. You should be able to just pick up the phone and tell Tim McGraw, hey, buddy, I just wrote a song that I think is perfect. But you're much more like an actor that's still got to go out and audition for every – at least that's what I'm hearing. Am I hearing that right? Yeah, I mean, it would be – that would be fantastic if I, if I could do that. Tim, I got your next hit here, buddy. I'm shooting it over to you right now. <laughs> and it ain't like that at all. But it's not like, no, it's not like that at all. And it's, I mean, it's just like, the fact is, they go through a lot of songs, you know, and because, and like you said, Tim McGraw does not really want, he wants to record a hit or a song that can only be a hit for Tim McGraw. And I think a lot of those guys are that way. You know, they're looking for songs that were hits specific to them and for who they are as an artist, you know, and I think a lot of times newer artists, you know, they're just trying to find a song. They just want to get on the radio. Does that make sense? You know what I'm saying? When you talk about a new artist, would Dustin Lynch be a good example for you? You wrote his first hit, Cowboys and Angels. I've been really, and it's funny, I've been really, really fortunate with new artists. So Dustin and I, we wrote with Doug, me and Dustin and Josh Leo. We wrote Cowboys and Angels the very first day we got together. Now Josh and I have known each other for a long time and have been writing, have written a bunch of songs together. But the first day we met Dustin, you know, we were doing the small talk thing, and you know, he was telling us his story and and asking us how you know how long we'd been in town and all that business. And then finally, it got to so do you have any ideas? And he said he didn't even though he really did. He said he didn't. And so I was tossing out some ideas, and he was like, nah, I don't, you know, I don't know. 
And then I said, man, I've been wanting to write this. And I have this old, this like leather, old leather bound kind of journal that I keep titles and just thoughts and ideas in. And I said, man, I've been wanting to write this for a while. It's a title called Cowboys and Angels. And he said, man, let me see that. Let me show me. I said, yes, yeah, see, it's right there. I had showed him the book. So see, it's right there. He said, you are not going to believe this, but. He said, that is the idea that I wanted to write today, but I was just, like, nervous, and I was, and I didn't want to mention it because I was afraid y'all might not like it. What? And so, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so Josh said, well, I guess we know what we're writing today. There's a want and there's a need. There's a history between. Girls like her and guys like me. Cowboys and angels. And so we wrote that, and and um, it turned out to be his first, you know, his very first single. Still one of his, I feel like, kind of career songs. What an incredible story! Isn't that crazy? If I heard correctly, there's also kind of an interesting story that goes with Heads Carolina, Tails California, and how Jody Messina ended up recording that song for her debut album. Uh, Jody was working on her very first record, and Tim McGraw, Tim happened to be producing it with with Byron Gallimore, who was his his producer. And so they had recorded, a, they had already recorded a song of mine called "You're Not in Kansas Anymore," which which which, which went on to be her second single. And so we had heard that they might possibly be looking for a duet that Tim could sing with Jody for the first record. And so Mark Sanders and I had written Heads Carolina, and we but we had pitched it around some, and um, nobody had had jumped on it. And so when I heard that they might possibly be looking for a duet for Tim, I just felt like it was like, oh, this could be perfect. They could just split up these verses, like sing. together on the course so i called this is a case where i did call jody i had her number and i said hey y'all are looking for a duet might be looking for duet i feel like i really think i might have the song and she said well just which i typically don't i typically don't say that right you know i don't you know i just rather not hype a song too too much i just like i'll put it in their box or email it to them and let them decide for themselves but this i just felt i just felt that strongly about and so at that time i lived like five minutes from her in mount juliet tennessee just a little town east of nashville and so she said well just she said put it in the drop swing swing by on your way to town in the morning put it in the mailbox and so that's what i did and um i'd never heard anything else until she called to her three weeks later and said, hey, we cut your song, but it's not a duet. Are you mad? <laughs> it's like, well, no, of course not. She said, well, do you, do you want to hear it? It's like, uh, yeah, absolutely. And so I ran back over, and um, she, uh, the first time I heard 
the record heads to Carolina. Tails California was sitting in Jody's car in her driveway. Baby, what do you say we just get lost? Leave this one horse town like two rebels without a cause. Heads to Carolina had that magic dust, you know, like we were talking about. I felt like it had that, and and sure enough, it was her first single, and it was and it was a big hit. And other than other than "Live Like You Were Dying," it's still my biggest copyright. And it still gets played a ton. It, it still gets, it, it does, yeah. yeah. It really does. It seems like, and it still holds up. But the reason I think, you know, other artists passed, passed on it, I, because I, I think it was supposed to be Jody Messina's song. It was supposed to go to her. And that's why, and I think songs find their way. We had a similar story um, like that when um, me and Connie Harrington, and Jamie Lynn Spears wrote "I Got the Boy," and we wrote that for Jamie Lynn. It was it, it was her story, and for whatever reason, they ended up not recording it. And I think again, the reason is is because Jana Kramer was supposed to have it. I saw your picture in the paper, honeymoon in Jamaica. She's a lucky girl. You look so grown up in your black tux from a ball cap and a pickup seems like another world. So I think songs find their way. I got the first kiss, she'll get the last. She's got the future. There's a lot that you do that's just kind of left to, to I don't want to say fate necessarily, but no, it is. <laughs> it, but it kind of no. is, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is. You know, again, that it, it goes back to that thing of you have to love it. You have to love because it's, it's again, it's and I do love it, and we are, and all of us that have been fortunate enough to make our living this way for any amount of time to to a very large degree we're all the same person same guy or same girl you know because we moved from wherever it was we were from because we we had to because i think in addition to you choosing music i think or, or in, really anything in the arts, I think, whether it's if you want to be an actor or a singer or a writer or whatever, I think in a strange way, music has to choose you as well. Does yeah. that make sense at all? You, you know, I absolutely. Think yeah. A lot of times there are people that or they think or they choose music, but music, for whatever reason, doesn't choose them back. You know, and I think, again, that speaks to that. You just have to. Be willing to stick it out because there are, again, there are so many things that you can't control. 
Well, one of the things you know, I mean, that, that, that I've noticed, kind of a common denominator in just the, the, these three episodes that I've done, but Brett has talked about it and Jeff talked about it too, and, and I definitely hear it coming through loud and clear with you, is you've got to be flexible. You've got to be open-minded, and you've got to be kind of willing to, to pivot when it's necessary. And I can definitely see where if somebody's bullheaded and they only write this way or they only want this artist to cut these songs, they're going to they're gonna wash out pretty quickly. Right, right, because that kind of – I just feel like that type of character probably makes for a better movie than mm-hmm. than, than a really – than a successful – having a successful career as a songwriter. You know, I, I got my first deal 32 years ago now writing for Ronnie Millsap's publishing company. And so the industry – I mean, it's changed a lot. Well, So what I do is there's – a 100% a creative aspect, but then it's also like just structure the structures of the songs and the, and the phrasing. And now, you know, because year, like years ago when I first started, I remember, you know, the artists were older and the, and the country audience was older. Well, I remember the CMA would, they wanted to see the audience start skewing a little younger. And so then you say, you know you start getting signing younger artists, and so now the audience, the, the country audience. I mean, you go to a country show these days. Go to CMA Music Fest and see them. I mean, there are all ages, but there are lots of young kids. I have my son is twenty four now, and when he was in high school, I mean, ever and he was like all over the map as far as genres. I mean, that's the kids today. Well, you know, when I was growing up, it's like. Well, you liked country or you liked rock. You were one or the other, and you, and you couldn't like both. But now they, it's like it's like Eric Church said in a, I think a Billboard article several years ago. He just his, his quote was basically like genres are dead. You know, it's just there's just good music and bad music, and genres are don't exist so much. Well, or if they are, or, or if they do, they're not as important because, like I said, my son, he's like. He loves Eric Church. He's all, you know, but at the same time, he loves Wiz Khalifa or whoever. They just like a little bit of everything. And so, and so consequently, then that filters into a younger audience. And if they also like hip hop, rap, then they're going to bring those influences with them to their artistry. And so they're going to incorporate, they're going to be looking for songs with more that kind of phrasing. And that's a little more progressive in the production. And so as a songwriter, it's like, hey, I'm, I still want to make so I still want to get songs on the radio. That's what makes me happy. So you do have to be, you have to be flexible. You have to be, you know, you have to be willing to change with the times. And I feel like you, sh- you can't be necessarily just kind of just do one thing. I mean, I'm over you for Keith Whitley. As much as I love those kind of songs, you know, I mean, for the past several years, that's not necessarily been the thing. Now, there are now a couple of new artists, you know, I mean, John Party is, cut, you know, he's doing country songs. Uh, William Michael Morgan and those guys, I mean, they're in their 20s. You know, Keith Whitley is pretty much around the top of the heap for those guys, you know, so that's fun to see. But again, to speak to your point, yeah, it's, it's good to be able to be flexible. And to, and to be able to 
to roll with it a little bit. Especially now more than ever, just to kind of put a wrap on, on what you're talking about, just being in, in country radio for over 30 years and 26 at the station I'm at now and seeing things change exactly like you have. And I think that, that you and I are of a, a, a similar age. All of that aside, I would say that of all the formats, all the genres, country has the biggest umbrella because you can have a Thomas Rhett right. on, on one end of the yep. spectrum who's really, you know, kind of pushing the envelope with mixing. For sure. And, but then you've got right. the John Parties and the William Michael Morgans and, and, and artists like that who are more uh, kind of neo-traditional. And there, I don't think That's there's right. another format that, that kind of covers that spectrum as well as country does. Yeah, and I think I, I agree 100%. And I think that's one of the things that I really like. I think personally that's good for the industry. I mean, I go back, you go, and you'll, I think, probably remember this too. I mean, they were back late 80s or whatever. I mean, when you had Lyle Lovett and KD Lang and the Kentucky Headhunters and Billy Ray Cyrus and Alan Jackson and Garth and Clint, I mean, you could cover a lot of ground and still be on country radio. Mm-hmm. And I think that makes for a, a really interesting and just more and a bit more diverse audience. And I think it's I, I think it's a good a great thing for the format. I, I I love hearing you say that. I think it's kind of a reflection of what you were talking about with your son. And my kids are the same way. Um, yep. They're a lot more open and receptive to different styles. And as Eric Church put it, if it's good, it's good. If it's bad. Right. It's bad, and it's just it's it's such a different kind of way of thinking than, as you mentioned earlier, what you or I grew up with. But I think for twenty <laughs> somethings and even some you know early thirty somethings, it's not even on their radar. Yeah, yeah, they just they don't think of it. It's like there's a girl that writes for us, and her name is Emily Wiseband, and so she she's like twenty three, twenty four. She's already won a Grammy with Hillary Scott and Bernie Herms when Hillary of Lady A did the. Um, a Christian record with her family a couple of years ago, there was a song that, that Emily and Hillary and Bernie Herms wrote called Thy Will that won a Grammy. She has songs on the Thomas Rhett record. She's writing with Keith Urban. She's writing with Sam Hunt. And she now has the um, Camila Cabello record, Consequences. She wrote that with another country writer here in Nashville, Nicole Gallion, and a pop writer from London, Amy Wodge. And so... Emily is she's like three she's in three genres <laughs> and she has a record deal with Warner Brothers a pop deal out of LA and she's finishing that with Mike Elizondo who's a producer who's worked with Eminem and Dr. Dre and Katy Perry and again I think that just speaks to what we're exactly what we're talking about. Uh, Tim Nichols, it's been an absolute joy to talk to you and I wish we had more time. I do want to wrap this up though because this is going to air in December. So if you don't mind, I, I've, I've got to end with you telling the story. Uh, if you've got a, a story, I've never, I don't know. Uh, but but uh, I guarantee our station is playing the schniz out of I Only Want You for Christmas right now from Alan Jackson. <laughs> and you right. wrote that. So if you wouldn't mind. I did. Give us, give us the story on how that came about. That's been several years ago now. Again, what, writing with my buddy Zach Turner, uh, the guy that we wrote I'm Over You Together. He was writing at the time for Barry Coburn, who was um, uh, managing Allen at the time. And so we knew that Allen was um, looking for, so was going to be looking for songs for a Christmas project. And so we, you know, again, that's just, you know, let's just show up and see what we can do. And a lot of times um, 
it's fun to be like like an assignment writing. You know, when you it's like, okay, we got a target. Work, okay, we're trying to write a Christmas song for Alan Jackson. It just, it just, uh, we we were aiming at Alan, and we came up with this. We had this title, "I Only Want You for Christmas," and we wrote it the best we could that day. And lo and behold, we got uh, really fortunate, and Alan recorded it. And it's uh, it's a nice little Christmas present every year. The the, the gift that keeps giving. <laughs> Are you talking about specifically you and your bank account? <laughs> Absolutely, it's a nice little, <laughs> little nice little Christmas present <laughs> that comes every year. I only want you for Christmas, baby. I don't need nothing else. I only want you for Christmas, baby. Tie ribbon around yourself. Oh, tie ribbon around yourself. Well, Tim Nichols, thank you so much, and uh, I'd love to talk to you again at some point. I have so many more questions, but uh, it's just uh, you've been very revealing, and we appreciate it very much. Well, Thomas, thanks a lot. Again, we're always happy to do it. And, um, man, congratulations on this now, your third episode, and uh, big-time success. Wish you all the best, and uh, stay in touch. Christmas, baby. Write You a Song is made possible in part by Bonneville Communications International, and we have to give a huge thanks to Songwriter City, which will pair up your conference or corporate event with one of the most unique couple of hours of entertainment your guests will ever experience. World-class songwriters sharing the stage, singing their hits, and sharing the stories behind those hits. Legendary songwriters like Don Schlitz, Tom Douglas, Red Akins, Kelly Loveless, Liz Rose, and yeah... Tim Nichols, who says it's a little like bringing the Bluebird Cafe to you. Nashville is a bit of the it city now, and so there are lots of groups that want to bring their organizations to town. And so when people come to Nashville, they want a uniquely Nashville experience. And there's nothing more uniquely Nashville than a songwriter night. So basically, we bring the Bluebird to the to the client, and we tell the stories behind the songs, and we play the songs, and, and it's just for so many people... It's an experience that they haven't had before, and they didn't even know that a show like this existed. It's really fun. It's kind of like a peek behind the curtain, so to speak. And the other thing is, we get on a plane. We can come to you. So if that's something you're interested in, please reach out. For more information or to just book an event, go to songwritercity.com. That's songwritercity.com. That'll do it for this month's episode of Write You a Song. Please join us next month when our guest is Bryce Long. With nothing on but the radio. She was a heartache on the dance floor. Like He's got some great stories to tell, and you'll hear him in February on Write You a Song. Thanks again for listening.